is an audio version of Why I Don't Agree with HLI's Estimate of Household Spillovers from Therapy by James Snowden, published on the 24th of February 2023. Heading, Summary. In its cost-effectiveness estimate of strong minds, Happier Lives Institute, or HLI, estimates that most of the benefits accrue not to the women who receive therapy, but to household members. According to HLI's estimates, each household member benefits from the intervention around 50% as much as the person receiving therapy. And in a footnote, there's an additional quote from that research saying, For psychotherapy, we estimate from three studies the spillover ratio to be 53%, with a 95% confidence interval of 11% to 108%. That's from happiness for the whole family. That's the end of that footnote. Back to the main text. Because there are around five non-recipient household members per treated person, this estimate increases the cost-effectiveness estimate by around 250%. That is, 70-80% to 80% of the benefits of therapy accrue to household members, rather than the program participant. And another footnote here, after 250%, says, quote, We use the non-recipient household size, the household size minus the recipient of the intervention. For strong minds, we find a non-recipient household size of 4.85, with a 95% confidence interval 1.01 to 8.94, That's also from happiness for the whole family. That's the end of that footnote. And here's a text box containing the main argument of the summary. I don't think the existing evidence justifies HLI's estimate of 50% household spillovers. My main disagreements are... A list of three points. One. Two of the three RCTs HLI relies on to estimate spillovers are on interventions specifically intended to benefit household members unlike StrongMinds' program, which targets women and adolescents living with depression. Two, those RCTs only measure the well-being of a subset of household members most likely to benefit from the intervention. And the third and final point, the results of the third RCT are inconsistent with HLI's estimate. That's the end of the text box, and the text continues. I guess the spillover benefits to other households is more likely to be in the 5-25% to 25% range, though this is speculative. That reduces the estimated cost-effectiveness of strong minds from nine times to three to six times cash transfers, which would be below GiveWell's funding bar of ten times. And there's a footnote here with an additional quote from Happiness for the Whole Family, quote, After including the household spillover effects, we estimated that psychotherapy is nine times, 95% confidence interval 2 to 100, more cost-effective than cash transfers. Before it was 12 times, end quote. And that's the end of the footnote. There's also a caveat here in a second footnote, and it reads, HLI has a different perspective on the cost-effectiveness of GiveWell's top charities, which are mostly focused on life-saving interventions, such that it's not entirely clear how comparable GiveWell's funding bar relative to cash is with HLI's implied funding bar relative to cash. That's end of the footnote. Back to the main text. I think I also disagree with other parts of HLI's analysis, including how worried to be about reporting bias, the costs of StrongMinds' program, and the point on a life satisfaction scale that's morally equivalent to death. I'd guess, though I'm not certain, that more careful consideration of each of these would reduce StrongMinds' cost-effectiveness estimate further relative to other opportunities. But I'm going to focus on spillovers in this post because I think it makes the most difference to the bottom line, represents the clearest issue to me, and has received relatively little attention in other critiques. For context... I wrote the first version of Founders Pledge's mental health report in 2017 and gave feedback on an early draft of HLI's report on household spillovers. 
I've spent five to ten hours digging into the question of household spillovers from therapy specifically. I work at Open Philanthropy, but wrote this post in a personal capacity. I'm reasonably confident the main critiques in this post are right, but much less confident in what the true magnitude of household spillovers is. I admire the work Strong Minds is doing, and I'm grateful to HLI for their expansive literature reviews and analysis on this question. Audio note, there's a section of acknowledgements here before the article continues. I'll skip the acknowledgements. Heading, part zero. How HLI estimates the household spillover rate of therapy. HLI estimates household spillovers of therapy on the basis of the three RCTs on therapy which collected data on the subjective well-being of some of the household members of program participants. And there are a series of references here with links to Matamba et al. 2018, Swartz et al. 2008, and Kemp et al. 2009. Combining those RCTs in a meta-analysis, HLI estimates household spillover rates of 53%. See the forest plot pictured below. 53% comes from dividing the average household member effect, 0.35, by the average recipient effect, 0.66. And here's a forest plot labelled Figure 3, Recipient and Household Effects of Psychotherapy on Wellbeing. So it lists the different studies, Kemp et al., Mutamba et al., and Swartz et al., breaking it down into children and adults, and showing the effect, the standardised mean difference, above or below zero. And we notice that according to this graph, all of the effects are positive, although a number of them, particularly Kemp et al. and Swartz et al., have whiskers that extend into the negative space. We notice that the average recipient effect is around 0.66, with a confidence interval 95%, between 0.35 and 0.97. We notice that the average household member effect is 0.35, with a confidence interval of negative 0.04 to 0.74, And accordingly, we notice that that left whisker of the average household member effect is slightly to the left of zero. The main text continues. HLI assumes StrongMinds' intervention will have a similar effect on household members. But I don't think these three RCTs can be used to generate a reliable estimate for the spillovers of StrongMinds' program for three reasons. Heading, part one. Two of the three RCTs HLI relies on to estimate spillovers are on interventions specifically intended to benefit household members, unlike StrongMinds' program, which targets women and adolescents living with depression. I briefly skimmed each of the RCTs, but I haven't reviewed them in depth. Mutamba et al. 2018 delivered psychotherapy to caregivers of children with nodding syndrome, that's a neurological illness that includes seizures, and modified the typical therapy guidelines with, quote, addition of nodding syndrome-specific content, end quote. And Swartz et al. 2008 delivered psychotherapy to depressed mothers whose children have psychiatric illness. It, quote, uses specific strategies to assist mothers in managing problematic interpersonal relationships with their dependent, psychiatrically ill offspring, end quote. HLI does note limitations to external validity in its report, but concludes it's not sure whether these differences would lead to an underestimation or overestimation of treatment effects relative to strong minds. Quote, A limitation to the external validity of this evidence is that all of the samples were selected based on negative shocks happening to the children in the sample. We're not sure if this would lead to an over or underestimate of the treatment effects, but it is potentially a further deviation from the type of household we're trying to predict the effects of psychotherapy for. End quote. That quote's also from Happiness from the Whole Family, a 2022 report. Generalising across interventions is difficult. 
But it seems intuitive to me that we should expect the interventions in those studies would benefit household members more than StrongMinds' intervention because A, they were targeted at caregivers of children with psychiatric or neurological illnesses who I'd expect to be particularly sensitive to the standard of caregiving and B, they were specifically designed to help those children. This seems like the simplest explanation for why these studies were two of the only studies on psychotherapy to measure the effect on household members because they were actively trying to help household members, and so had a reasonable expectation of finding an effect. A couple of caveats. The control group in Mutamba et al. 2018 may have also received a similar level of training in management of children with nodding syndrome. If this were the case, it had weakened point B, though point A would still stand. Audio note. That is, point A would still stand... They were targeted at caregivers of children with psychiatric or neurological illnesses who I'd expect to be particularly sensitive to the standard of caregiving. But it had weakened point B. They were specifically designed to help those children. And there's a footnote here that reads, In Mutamba et al. 2018, Table 1 suggests the intervention included an adaptation of nodding syndrome-specific content. I'd also guess that in a group setting with a shared experience as specific as caring for a child with nodding syndrome, that would inform much of the discussion even if it wasn't deliberately included as part of the intervention. On the other hand, the control group received at least some relevant training. From Mutamba et al. 2018, page 3, quote, All health workers at HFs in the study sites received training on the medical management of children with NS. Caregivers in the TAU and experimental arm villages received usual care as provided for in the National Management Guidelines for NS, and a reference to IDRO et al. 2013. TAU included health education about NS, syndromic management of children with pharmacological agents, typically sodium valproate or carbamazepine, and caregiver education and supportive counselling. That's another reference to Idro et al. 2013. And that's the end of the quote and the end of the footnote. Back to the main text, here's the second caveat. StrongMinds' intervention is interpersonal group therapy, which one might expect to also benefit close relationships. And I do expect there's some positive effect in expectation. But this still seems quite different from the specificity with which the interventions in these two studies were targeted. Other less targeted studies of interpersonal therapy, for example Bolton et al. 2003, didn't measure effects on household members, and I assume part of the reason is they didn't expect to see a measurable effect. Heading, part 2. Those RCTs only measure the well-being of a subset of household members most likely to benefit from the intervention. In its cost-effectiveness estimate, HLI applies the estimated spillover effect to around five household members for each person treated with depression. But the spillover effect is estimated based on a single household member who seemed most likely to benefit from the intervention. Mutamba et al. 2018 treated caregivers and measured the effects on one child with nodding syndrome. Here's a quote from that paper in a footnote. Quote, A child was included if they had NS and a consenting caregiver with them. In families with more than one child with NS, approximately 30%, caregivers were asked to identify one of their children most affected by NS that would participate in the study. End quote. That's the end of the footnote. Back to the main text. Swartz et al. 2008 treated mothers and measured the effects on one child receiving psychiatric treatment. And once again, there's a footnote with a quote in it. Quote, Children gave informed consent or assent after mothers were deemed eligible for inclusion. If multiple children were eligible, the mothers were asked to designate one child participant. End quote. And the end of the footnote. Back to the main text. 
Extrapolating these benefits to the entire household without discounting seems like a stretch to me for the same reasons as outlined above. It seems likely that these children were the household members most likely to benefit from the intervention, which was A, specifically targeted at their caregivers, and B, specifically designed to help those children. Heading, part three. The results of the third RCT are inconsistent with HLI's estimate. In the forest plot above, HLI reports that Kemp et al. 2009 finds a non-significant 0.35, with a confidence interval of negative 0.43 to 1.13, standard deviation improvement in mental health for parents of treated children. But Table 2 reports that parents in the treatment group's score on the GHQ12 increased relative to the waitlist group. Higher scores on the GHQ12 indicate more self-reported mental health problems. And a quote in a footnote from Kemp et al. 2009, Despite random allocation to group, waitlist parents reported higher self-reported health problems on the GHQ12. And now we see a table labelled Table 2, Pre- to Post-Treatment Comparisons for Non-Trauma Measures. There's a considerable amount of data in this table which you can check out in the original post, but the row for GHQ has been highlighted, with a note saying there were no significant differences between the EMDR and waitlist group from pre- to post-treatment. The text continues. To be clear, I doubt the intervention really did have a negative effect on parents' mental health. The effect sizes on GHQ are small and far from significant. I looked at GHQ because it seems to be HLI's preferred measure of mental health. A footnote here reads, In Kempetal 2009, the mental health of the parents who did not receive therapy was measured with the 12 Items General Health Questionnaire, or GHQ-12. There was a significant difference in GHQ-12 levels between the control and treatment group patients, so we used the difference of differences between baseline and post-treatment to adjust for this. End quote. That's from happiness for the whole family. Back to the main text. But another measure, the impact of event scale, or IES, does seem to have declined slash improved non-significantly more in the treatment than the control group. And another, the general functioning scale, or GFS, stayed about the same in both groups. Given the inconsistency of results between different instruments and the lack of statistical power, I don't think we can learn much either way about household spillovers from this study. Heading, what would I do if I wanted to get a better estimate of household spillovers from therapy? My best guess of 5-25% to spillovers is very subjective and largely comes from a combination of adjusting the RCT evidence downwards for some of the concerns above, reflecting on my priors, and a very brief skim of some of the observational evidence HLI cites in its report. If I wanted to get a better estimate, I'd consider... Here's a list of points. The first one. More carefully reviewing the observational evidence for associations between familial subjective well-being. For example, Das et al. 2008, a cross-sectional study of survey data across five low- and middle-income countries, finds, quote, a one-standard deviation change in the mental health of household members is associated with a 0.22 to 0.59 standard deviation change in own mental health, end quote. But notes omitted variable bias probably means this overestimates the causal effect. Here's a footnote with another quote from Das et al. 2008. Quote, There are several possible channels for such a correlation. It may reflect omitted household variables, such as household-specific shocks or a lack of health services. It could also reflect unobserved individual traits if assortative mating leads those with poor mental health to marry and perhaps pass on genetic factors influencing mental health of other family members. 
But it is also plausible that the presence of one household member with poor mental health creates a poor mental health environment for other household members. A contagion effect, in quotes. That's the end of that quote and the end of the footnote. Back to the main text, we continue with the first point that the author would consider to get a better estimate. Other correlational studies find lower associations, 5% and 25%. And note that while omitted variable bias might lead to an overestimation of the effect, measurement error might also lead to an underestimation of the effect. And there's a footnote here after the other correlational studies finding lower associations of 5% and 25%. The first is a link to Paltevi and Vignol's 2008, a study in the UK, finds a one standard deviation increase in parents' mental distress in the previous year is associated with 25% of a standard deviation lower life satisfaction in the current year for girls. Quote, given that the mean of LS for girls is 5.738 and its standard deviation is 1.348, a ceteris paribus increase of one standard deviation in either parent's mental distress level explains around a 25% drop in the standard deviation in the girl's LS. And Mendolia et al. 2018, a study in Australia, finds a one standard deviation increase in partner's life satisfaction is associated with 5% of a standard deviation increase in individual life satisfaction. Quote, In Table 7, we begin with the analysis of the impact of the partner's standardised SF36 mental health score, 0 to 100, where higher values represent higher level of well-being. Increasing this score by one standard deviation increases individuals' life satisfaction by 0.07 points on a 1 to 10 scale, which is equivalent to 5% of a standard deviation in life satisfaction. To put this in context, this is similar to the reversed effect of becoming unemployed or being a victim of a property crime. That's in that footnote. Back to the main text, there was another footnote after measurement error might also lead to an underestimation of the effect, and that's a reference to Paltevi 2009 with a quote, in addition to the above confounding influences which make it difficult for the true relationship between partners' well-being to be identified, the estimates of spousal correlation in LS may also suffer from the negative measurement error bias. There may be, for example, a tendency for individuals to misreport their true LS in surveys. The low signal-to-noise ratio caused by misreporting can result in an estimated coefficient on partner LS that is biased towards zero in a large sample. In short, because there are both positive correlated effects and negative measurement error, bias is involved. The direction of bias is unclear on a priori ground. End quote. And that's the end of the footnote. Back to the main text. Here's the second point in the list of considerations for getting a better estimate. Looking at evidence for analogous effects. For example, how strong are household spillovers from education? And the next point. Talking to people who participated in Strong Minds' program and their household members to better understand potential mechanisms for spillover effects. And the last point in that list, running a larger RCT which measures the impact of therapy on all household members. Audio note, there's a very highly upvoted comment here from Joel McGuire responding to this paper, which I'll read out now. James courteously shared a draft of this piece with me before posting. I really appreciate that and his substantive constructive feedback. Heading 1. I blundered. The first thing worth acknowledging is that he pointed out a mistake that substantially changes our results, and for that I'm grateful. It goes to show the value of having sceptical external reviewers. He pointed out that Kemp et al. 2009 finds a negative effect, while we recorded its effect as positive, meaning we coded the study as having the wrong sign. What happened is that mental health outcomes are often higher equals bad, 
and subjective well-being is higher equals better. So we note this in our code so that all effects that imply benefits are positive. What went wrong was that we coded Kemp et al. 2019, which used the GHQ12 as higher equals bad, which is usually the case, when the opposite was true. Higher equaled good in this case because we had to do an extra calculation to extract the effect. Footnote, since there was baseline imbalance in the PHQ9, we took the difference in pre-post changes, which flipped the sign. This correlation would reduce the spillover effect from 53% to 38% and reduce the cost-effectiveness comparison from 9.5 to 7.5 times. A clear downwards correction. This is how the forest plot should look. And so here we see the forest plot from before. This time we notice a number of differences, the first being that the lines for Kemp et al. have shifted to the left and are now more negative than they were before, including having the centre point of the whiskers for the treatment recipient group in Kemp et al. being to the left of the zero point. And so correspondingly, the average household member effect also has a longer left whisker, which reaches a lot further left of the zero point into the negative region. Heading 2. James's Other Critiques I think James's other critiques are also pretty reasonable. This updates me towards weighting these studies less. That said, what I should place weight on instead remains quite uncertain to me. I've thought about it a bit, and I'm unsure what to make of the observational evidence. My reading of the observational literature mostly accords with James, I think, and it does appear to suggest smaller spillovers than the low-quality RCTs I previously referenced, 20% versus the now 38%. Here's a little table I made while doing a brief review during my discussion with James. And there's a table here in the comments comparing 15 different studies, looking at the kind of shock they studied, the study type, the relationship in the study, spillover-adjusted and spillover-raw figures, and a genetic or sorting discount. I'll omit this table from this discussion. You can check it out in the original post if you'd like. The comment continues. However, I wonder if there's something about the more observational literature that makes household spillovers appear smaller, regardless of the source. To investigate this further, I briefly compared household spillovers from unemployment and mental health shocks. This led me to an estimate of around 57% as the household spillover of unemployment, which I think we could use as a prior for other economic shocks. This is a bit lower than the 86% I estimated as the household spillover for cash transfers. Again, not quite sure what to make of this. Heading 3. Other factors that influence my priors or fuzzy tummy feelings about psychotherapy spillovers. Mother's mental health seems really important, over and above a father's mental health. Augustine, 2022, finds a higher relationship between mother and child mental health than father and child mental health. A 1 LS point change in the mother predicts a 0.13 change in LS for the child, as opposed to 0.06 for fathers. Many of the studies above seem to have larger mother-to-child effects than father-to-child. This could be relevant as strong minds primarily treats women. Next point, mental health appears important relative to the effect of income. See a figure from Clark et al. 2018 shown below. I won't describe this graph in detail, but we do indeed notice that the bar for mother's mental health is three times the magnitude of the bars for family income and parents' education. The next point... McNamee et al. 2021, a published version of Mendolia et al. 2018, finds that having a partner with a long-term emotional or nervous condition that requires treatment has a negative 0.8 effect on LS, and that log household income has a 0.064 effect, 
If we interpret 0.69 log units as leading to a doubling, and assume that most $1,000 CTs lead to about a doubling in household income, then the effective doubling income is about 0.064 times 0.69, which equals 0.04 effect on LS. If I assume that the effective depression is similar to, quote, long-term emotional or nervous condition that requires treatment, and psychotherapy cures 40% of depression cases, then this leads to an effective psychotherapy of 0.4 times negative 0.08, which equals 0.032. Or the effective psychotherapy relative to doubling the income on a partner is 73%. Applying this to the 86% CT spillover would get us a 63% spillover ratio for psychotherapy. You could compare income and mental health effects on well-being in other studies, but I haven't had time to do so, and I'm not really sure of how informative this is. And another point, Paltivy and Vignoles 2008, which found the effect of mother distress in the previous period on children is 14% of the effect that the child's own well-being in the previous period had on their present well-being. But it also seems to give weirdly small coefficients, and non-significant, for the effect of log income on life satisfaction, 0.054 for fathers, negative 0.132 for mothers. The next point, Early life exposure to a patient's low mental health seems plausibly related to very long-term well-being effects through higher likelihood of worse parenting, abuse, fewer resources to support the child, is a reference to Zhang et al. 2021. Next point. I'm unsure if positive and negative shocks spill over in the same way. Negativity seems more contagious than positivity. For instance, in Heard et al. 2014, the spillover effects of re-employment seemed less than the harms of unemployment. Also see Adam et al. 2014. I'm sure there's much more on this topic. And there's a detailed footnote here with a quote from Adam et al. 2014, which I will omit from this recording for brevity. The main text continues. This makes me think that it may not be a wild guess to see relatively smaller gap between the spillovers of cash transfers and psychotherapy than we may initially expect. And the last point, most of these studies are in HICs. It seems plausible that spillovers for any intervention could be different, and I suspect higher in LMICs than HICs. I assume emotional contagion is a function of spending time together, and spending more time together seems likelier when houses are smaller. You can't shut yourself in your room as easily. Transportation is relatively more expensive, difficult and dangerous, and you may have fewer reasons to go elsewhere. One caveat is that household sizes are larger, so there may be less time directly spent with any given household member, so that's a factor that could push in the other direction. Heading 4. What's next? I think James and I probably agree that making sense out of the observational evidence is tricky to say the least, and a high-quality RCT would be very welcome for informing our views and settling our disagreements. I think some further insight could come sooner rather than later. As I was writing this, I wondered if there was any possibility of household spillovers in Barker et al. 2022, a recent study about the effects of CBT on the general population in Ghana that looked into community spillovers of psychotherapy. 33% the size of the treatment effect, but non-significant. But that's a problem for another time. In section 3.2, the paper reads, quote, At the end line, we administered only the adult survey, again to both the household head and their spouse. In our analysis of outcomes, we include the responses of both adults in control households. In households where an individual receives CBT, we only include treated individuals. End quote. This means that while Barkett et al. didn't look into it, 
We should be able to estimate the spousal mental health spillover of having your partner receive CBT. In further good news, the replication materials are public, but I'll leave this as a teaser while I try to figure out how to run the analysis. That's the end of Joel Maguire's highly upvoted comment. There's a further comment by Joel Maguire which is not included in this recording. You can check out the entire discussion in the comments section on this post on the Effective Altruism Forum. This was an audio version of Why I Don't Agree with HLI's Estimate of Household Spillovers from Therapy by James Snowden. Posted on the 24th of February 2023. This reading was by Perrin Walker and produced by Type 3 Audio.